All right, so let's, um, I think last, um, before the uh, Christmas break, I think we, we had gotten up to Alfred the Great, king of the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, he, he was the first king to unite all of the tribes of the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, and really ruled over a united England uh, he also was the king who kind of stemmed the tide for a period of time of the Danish Vikings who were invading England, and he kind of made a pact. Remember, uh, the one Viking king came to faith in Christ, and him and Alfred made a pact together, and they fought together, actually repelling other Viking invaders. And the Vikings kind of had this area along the eastern uh, part of Britain. Um, that lasted a little, little while, but it didn't, it didn't last. Uh, the, the Vikings came back and overcame in, in, a, in, in time. In 9-11, um, those Danish Vikings who were not just invading England, but invaded the European continent as well, and I think I mentioned this, uh, the Frankish kings, the king of France, if you will, uh, made a deal with those Danish Vikings and gave them, in exchange for basically peace and cooperation, uh, gave them um, a segment of land along the coast of France that is known today as Normandy. It's called Normandy because it was the Normans or the Norsemans, the Northmen. It was their land, and it's where we get the name Normandy. Um, and so in 9-11, that, that land was deeded over to the Danish Vikings, and it became the region called Normandy. In 929... Um, so, man, I wish I had a map. I don't know how well you guys can visualize the world. Can you, can you visualize the world? Can you visualize the Mediterranean Sea? Can you visualize the rock, the Strait of Gibraltar? The Strait of Gibraltar is the most narrow point. It's where the Mediterranean Sea flows into the Atlantic Ocean. And there's a very narrow part there between the northern coast of Africa and the southern coast of the Iberian Peninsula. The Iberian Peninsula is where Spain and Portugal are. In 929, Muslims um, from northern Africa invaded the Iberian Peninsula and went into Spain and established a, really a kingdom there. So uh, there was a guy named Abd el-Rahman. And I, I think we may, forgive me if we've talked about this, but Abd el-Rahman was of a Muslim dynasty who was headquartered in Baghdad uh, in present-day Iraq. And Baghdad was the capital of this dynasty. Um, Damascus and Baghdad were the two major uh, centers there that the, the Islamic empire, Islamic kingdom 
was ruled from. And um, right now, I cannot remember. It's the Umayyad dynasty. The Umayyad dynasty ruled the Islamic empire. And then uh, the Abbasid dynasty was their competing family rival. The Abbasids came in and killed everybody one day, literally killed everybody who was of the Umayyad dynasty, except for one guy, Abdel Rahman. He was able to escape. It took him five years to get to North Africa. By that time in North Africa, the Muslims uh, were, were there, and the Berbers, or the Amaze, are the native people. Uh, if you want to see a real-life Berber, go to the La Princière Bakery here in Taylor. In, uh, it's a French pastry shop. And the, as the owner of that establishment, Hamid, is a Berber. He looks European. You would think he's from France, but he is Algerian. And he's native uh, Algerian. They were European-looking. They didn't look anything of what you, you think about when you think sometimes of, uh, of the more dark-complected Middle Eastern people. Well, it was this region of northern Africa that had been um, Islamicized by the, by the Muslims, and uh, they went into Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, and this guy, Abdel Rahman, reestablished the Umayyad dynasty in the western part of Europe on the Iberian Peninsula. And it was called, the, the, the Christians called it the ornament of the world. It, and it was um, this area where for a while, Christians, Muslims, and Jews really lived in harmony that is, if, as long as the Jews and the Christians didn't try to convert any Muslims to their faith. And that didn't last either. And it eventually kind of went south there. But in 929, this uh, kingdom of Cordoba is also what it was known as, was established there. In uh, 988, in 960, the Song Dynasty in China was established. So while all this is happening, remember China is kind of this isolated region. And it's isolated because it's surrounded by, by deserts, extremely high mountains, and then ocean on the, uh, on the eastern side. And so China was kind of this isolated area. And the Chinese didn't really, other than trading silk and trading things, uh, they, they were pretty self-sufficient. And so th they kind of stayed to themselves and they had dynasties, ruling families. They were broken up into tribes. Um, many years ago, I talked to a missionary, a, a Western missionary who had lived, well, he, they still live in China. He's raised his entire family there, and he was telling me, you know, there's like 3,000 dialects of Chinese because you had, it was never, for, for most of China's history, it was not ruled as a single empire or a single country. And so each of these regions have their own language, dialect. And he was saying, you know, that as horrible as communism was, when Mao came in, he 
unified the language, which made it much easier for missionaries to preach the gospel in China. So God works all things together for good, um, even using a really, really, really crooked stick to draw a straight line there. Um, in 988, the Russian Orthodox Church was founded. And so um, when, when, um, when the Russians, so remember Russia, the name Russia, comes from the Viking tribe called the Rus. And these were Swedish Vikings who went into Russia. So remember, the Vikings were kind of divided into three groups. You had Swedish Vikings, you had Norwegian Vikings, and you had Danish Vikings. And the Danish Vikings uh, really went into England and Northern Europe. The Swedish Vikings migrated more into what we know today as Russia. It's named after them. And then the Norwegian Vikings went more into Scotland, Ireland, and then they went west and actually settled um, Iceland, Greenland, and then went on to America, actually, um, and got to America before Christopher did. But the Russians, when they became Christian, they had a decision to make whether they were going to embrace... Um, Western Christianity, namely the, the Western Church, the Roman Church, or the Byzantine Church, which was Constantinople. And they sent, um, they sent delegates to Rome, and they sent delegates to Constantinople. And now remember, by this time, Rome has already fallen, the Roman Empire. And so the city of Rome has already been sacked by vandals, and so... The, the Church of Rome really kind of was the unifying factor. The empire was gone, and so religion, Christianity, is really what unified Western Europe. And it's why eventually the papacy was centered there in, in Rome, but it didn't start out that way. You know, the papacy kind of came about a little bit later, um, it's there by this time, but, you know, when Peter visited Rome, when Paul was in Rome, you, you know there was no such thing as a pope. And the pope, which just means father in Latin, papa, father, the pope, uh, that was just a term used for the bishops. And, and then it, it became the official title of the Bishop of Rome, which ultimately morphed into the Pope. And so the Russians sent delegates to decide which branch of Christianity they wanted to um, adopt, which branch of Christianity we know they adopted the Eastern branch. And do you know why they did that? It really had nothing to do with theology. It had everything to do with architecture. So when the Russian delegate went to Constantinople and they saw the beauty of Byzantine architecture, the color. So, you know, the iconic, I can't remember what the name of it is, the iconic picture 
of the Russian, uh, of the Kremlin and, and all of that. Uh, and then there's a big cathedral there in the Kremlin uh, with the, like the onion domes and the beautiful color. Well, that's Byzantine architecture. And so when the Russian delegation goes to Constantinople, they're just, they're in awe of this beautiful architecture, beautiful churches. And so they go back and it's like, wow, let's go east. Let's go with the eastern folks. And so you see that architecture from the Byzantine architecture is, is replicated um, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, much of, 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 for instance, when we had the iconoclast controversy about icons, um, the Byzantine church went back to having images in their churches. Uh, the Western church, the Roman church, it was not until uh, the Renaissance that they let images really back into the church. And so uh, the Eastern Orthodox church was all about beauty, and so the Russians um, established uh, the Russian Orthodox Church there in 1054. So there was a divide. Remember, uh, Diocletian, the Roman emperor, divided his empire into two because it was too, too unwieldy, too much for one man to manage. So he divided it into east and west. Uh, we saw this also even with... Um, as far back as Julius Caesar and, um, and the, the very beginning of the Roman emperors, when they had the, the triumvirate, they would divide it into regions. Well, then Constantine united everything again, and the church pretty much was united. The empire was united until the Western Roman Empire fell, and then uh, this division kind of took place, but yet they still were not completely separated until 1024, what's called the Great Schism, occurs when the western and eastern halves of the church. Now, the empire was already divided because when Rome fell in 476, the Byzantine Empire, the eastern Roman Empire, continued on for another thousand years as a political force, as a as a political entity and military entity. But the, um, when, Rome, when Rome fell in 476, it was the church that kind of rose out of the ashes to hold everything together. And they worked together. They weren't opposed to one another, Eastern and Western. So the Western church still looked to the Eastern church and they did things together, worked together in some in some capacities, uh, but in 1054, this great schism took place and it split apart um, the eastern and western halves of the church. And um, they basically <clears throat> excommunicated each other. So the western church excommunicated the patriarch of, the, of, the, of Constantinople and the the Eastern Church, and the Eastern Church excommunicated the Pope from their church, and so now they're two separate entities that don't get along anymore. And that schism happened in 1054. Now, remember, 
um, remember those Danish Vikings who were given that land on the northern coast of France that became known as Normandy? Well, in 1066, William the Conqueror took the throne of England. Um, and so William the Conqueror, it was Edward. Edward the Confessor was the king of England. <clears throat> and Edward the Confessor was raised in France. He was raised in France, and him and William were... were uh, I believe they were cousins. Uh, they were related. Um, and they knew each other. And when Edward the Confessor became king, uh, because he did not have an heir, he, the story goes that he told William that he was going to, to pass the throne to William. <clears throat> well, by this time now, William is in France, and he is ruling in France. And Edward the Confessor dies, and there's a void. Uh, and so in 1066, um, at the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror wins, and then eventually he takes the throne of England and establishes uh, the reign of the Normans, Norman reign in England. And French becomes the language of the English court. Uh, there was a long history between the French and the English. Uh, and later on, obviously, it became very, um, I mean, they were mortal enemies um, for many, many, many years. You had the, the Hundred Years' War. That was the war between England and France. But William the Conqueror, who was a direct descendant of the Viking king, who was given this land in, uh, in, in France, now becomes the king of England. He was the Duke of Normandy, uh, and then he becomes the king of England. Um, now remember also when... Um, so two things, we go back in history. So 1066, William the Conqueror becomes king. And um, they're, all, they're Catholic. So England, there is now only in the West a Catholic church, more or less. Um, and so the Pope is very invested in the political process. You know, we're skipping decades as we're going here. And remember back in, in uh, back when the Frankish kings, uh, remember there were these two ruling lines. There was the, um, I can't remember the one, but uh, Pepin the Short is the guy who talked the Pope into making him the, the king of the Franks, and that established the Carolingian line, and the other guy, he goes away, and then Pepin the Short's son is Charlemagne, and remember in 800, the Pope on Christmas Day crowns Charlemagne the emperor of the Holy 
Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire is basically, if you can picture in your mind, a map of Western Europe that was the Holy Roman Empire. And it was different than the Roman Empire that we think about from ancient history. Well, that, remember, set a precedent. Now the popes have put their blessing and established civil rulers and given them authority to rule. And so the question now in time from 800, when Charlemagne is, is, is crowned the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, in 1077, there was Emperor Henry IV. Now, this Henry, it gets kind of confusing because you got English king, kings named Henry and you got emperors of the Holy Roman Empire named Henry. Henry IV is not English. He's German. So he's, he's German. He's Frankish. He's um, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and him and the Pope are having a real um, conflict because what's happening is the Pope is now questioning the authority. Who has more authority? You know, the Pope is like, hey, I established the Holy Roman Emperor when I... When I crown Constant, when I crown Charlemagne, now you are subject to me. And the Holy Roman Emperor says, "No, I am the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Sir Pope. You are subject to me." And so there was this fight. And so um, the king basically um, says to the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor Henry says, we no longer recognize the Pope's authority. The Pope has no authority in the Holy Roman Empire. I am now the head of the church. And so that was a big deal. I mean, that was like a huge deal. And so what's the Pope going to do? The Pope doesn't really have an army. There is no army that the Pope has. What the Pope has, though, what the Pope traditionally had was the Roman, Holy Roman Emperor, who did have an army, who did have an empire, but now they're at odds with one another, and the Emperor says to the Pope, you're out. I'm now the Pope. I lead the church and the empire and we don't even recognize you anymore. And as the emperor, he had the right to do that. Well, the pope says, oh yeah? Well, I'll up you one there. I'm going to excommunicate you from the church. You are no longer recognized as a member in good standing of the Catholic church. You're excommunicated. You have no authority in the church, and we will now withhold communion, baptisms, and, and the sacraments. And so the Pope issued an order to all bishops and priests and said, no, no more, no more communion, 
No more sacraments until this emperor gets his act together. Well, what do you think happened? I mean, the people, sure, they might have loved the emperor, but what was it that unified all of Europe? It was the church. And now the people can't get sacraments. They can't take communion. They can't baptize their babies. They can't have, uh, you know, the, the things that are necessary done for them and they start getting very uncomfortable because they can't, they can't rightly worship God. And so this puts huge, huge political pressure on the emperor to the point that the emperor's uh, lords, his land barons and his guys that he counts on who have knights and armies and cities and people they can mobilize to fight his battles. Now his lords, his barons, his dukes are saying, you got to do something because the people are discontent. You've got to make amends with the Pope. Well, it was in 1077 that Emperor Henry IV, so the Pope, is in his castle somewhere in Italy. It's in the middle of winter. And the, the emperor has got to travel to the pope. And he goes to the castle. And as a sign of, of humility and repentance, he goes in sackcloth. He's like humbled himself. He's barefoot, and he's knocking at, literally knocking at the Pope's door. And guess what the Pope does? He doesn't answer the door. <laughs> and the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire is out there knocking, begging the Pope to answer the door. Well, the Pope was going to answer the door, but he was going to make King Henry beg. And King Henry did beg. So, yes. I cannot, not, I cannot remember his name. Um, um, I'll find out. Um, so the Pope has Henry come in, and he makes Henry bow before him, and he makes Henry kiss his ring and kiss his feet. As a, as a sign of humility and repentance and submission to the Pope's authority. And so the Pope won that battle. Now that's obviously not the last time um, that those things happened, but that was like a huge, that was a huge thing. Uh, and, and the point there is, that conflict between Pope and kings didn't go away. You know, later on in history, we're going um, we see we'll see where you know King Henry the Eighth does the same thing. Basically, it worked out a little better for him than it did for King Henry the Fourth of the Holy Roman Empire. Um.
I want to say it was Pope Galatius, but I don't think that. I think Pope Gregory VII? It might have been uh, Pope Gregory. Yeah, it is Pope Gregory. Pope Gregory. And again, there were lots of Gregory. So Gregory the Great, the, the Pope, um, he was the first Gregory. And so Gregory became a very popular Pope name because of the greatness of the first Gregory. It's kind of how naming of the popes works. Um, in 1079, priests were required uh, to be celibate. And so, you know, priests for, for a while, priests were allowed to marry. Uh, and it was, you know, Peter was married. Um, and so this idea that priests could not marry, which the Pope made this rule, and he made it for financial reasons, because when a priest would die and he had a house... Uh, the, the church was losing property. They didn't know what to do with the widows, and so they just made a hard and fast rule and said, if you're a priest, you can't marry. You don't own a house. The church owns everything. And so um, that is really why priests were forbidden to marry. Um, it was more of a financial reason um, than it was anything but in 1079, priests were, were no longer forbidden to marry. They had to be celibate. Um, in fact, Constantine, um, he, he rejected the idea that men ordained as priests uh, could not marry. Um, it really did come along later on in, in history. I was trying to see which pope it was that... You have to wait through a lot of stuff when you read the Catholic... Um, because they always want to make sure that they do the um, tracing back to Peter to make sure everybody knows Peter was the first pope. Um, actually, there were periods of times when there were multiple popes. Even in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the term pope was used by them. It was just a a term that they used for their bishops. And, of course, you know, the patriarch of Constantinople was the head of the church there, uh, like the pope, but, but not like the pope. Um, any questions up to this point? All right, in 1085, so remember, in 911... I'm sorry, in 929, uh, the Muslims established this uh, kingdom of Cordoba on the Iberian Peninsula. In 1085, um, what's known as the Reconquista, 
the reconquest of Spain begins. And so King Alfonso VI of Leon uh, in Toledo begins to try to take back Spain from the Muslims. And that continued on for several centuries. It was in 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed to the Americas, thinking he was going to the Indies, um, that the last area of Spain that was controlled by Muslims was finally taken. Um, and so what's called the Reconquista or the Reconquest of Spain, it's this retaking of Muslim lands. In 1096, the first crusade begins with the goal of retaking the Holy Land from the Muslims. So remember, it was in 622 that uh, Muhammad has his, uh, the Hajid, um, the, the, his journey. And from that point, that's the official start date of Islam, according to Muslims, 622, um, the Hagira, the, this 200-mile journey from Mecca to Medina. And so by the time we get to the first crusade in 1096, the Muslims have taken all of the Middle East, all of North Africa. Um, they've not taken Constantinople um, quite yet, but eventually Constantinople will fall to the Muslims, to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, 1096, the first crusade. In 1099, Jerusalem is captured by those crusaders and the kingdom of Jerusalem is established. Uh, and so in those crusades, uh, you had kings from various regions. You had the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, you had basically Christianized Western Europe mobilized its forces to send uh, troops to take Jerusalem. And they did in 1099 and established what was called the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Um, and I'll have to look and see. I don't have it here. But that lasted... Um, that lasted... Probably, I, I, I want to say close to a hundred years. It was, it was uh, Saladin who who took Jerusalem back. So, have you ever seen that movie, Kingdom of Heaven? It's it's loosely based on real historical uh, events, with a lot of embellishment added in there. But there really was a king of Jerusalem who was the king of the kingdom of Jerusalem in that area of the Middle East there that we think of, of you know, ancient Israel and those areas that were Christianized uh, in the early church. In 1119, the Knights Templar were founded. And so, um, do you know why the Knights Templar were founded? how that started. So it's kind of interesting history 
there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fascinating uh, conspiracy theories surrounding the Knights Templar. Who knows what's true and what's not? But the Knights Templar were basically founded. Um, they came into being um, out of really necessity. So when the, when the Crusaders took Jerusalem and the Christians regained control of Jerusalem, Jerusalem became a, the major pilgrimage point for Christians. So Christians in Europe would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem because they wanted to go see all the same things that people want to go see today. Now, do we really know where the manger, do we really know where the tomb of Jesus? No, we don't. So remember, it was Constantine's mother in about 300 AD who went back to Jerusalem and however she and they determined, a lot of those places were identified then, but it's 300 years or 200 years after the fact. And so we really don't know exactly it, what happened. By the time you get to the Crusades here, then you've got the Muslims that have been there and they've done all kinds of things. And so the bottom line is we really don't know what's what. But it was still Jerusalem. It's still the place where Christ was crucified and Bethlehem is not far. And so Christians would make pilgrimage and they would travel from all parts of the world, all parts of Europe to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And how did you get to Jerusalem from London? You had to take a ship across the English Channel and then you you would get on a boat, travel down the river, if you could, depending on where you were. There was a lot of travel, so you had rivers like the Rhine River, uh, for instance, that people would navigate the Rhine River to be able to get to the Holy Land in a more efficient way if you were in Spain, you didn't go to the Rhine River because, you know, you just walked or you sailed the Mediterranean. But think about it. Um, if you're going to go from England to Jerusalem, you got to eat. It's just like today. How are you going to eat? You can pack your lunch, but, you know, it's not a, this is not a 12-hour trip. You know, this is it's going to take you months to get there. And so what would happen is, for instance, the Templars. The Templars became the guys who held people's money. So the Templars, for instance, would take a note of credit. They would, you would give them your money and they would issue you a note of credit that you could use along the way so that you didn't have to carry sacks of gold with you. Now, our word for financial institutions is what? 
Where do you put your money? You put your money in a bank. You know why it's called a bank? Because as you traveled down the river, you would go to the bank and there would be a Knights Templar or equal, someone in authority who would be able to deal with your finances so you could get back on the boat and continue traveling. Banks. It's where it comes from. The salary. Why is your salary called a salary? You know why? Because back in the day, what was most valuable for a worker was not gold or silver, because you couldn't eat gold or silver. But salt is how you were paid. And so you received a salary each week each day, and so many workers were paid in salt because it would preserve their food. It, would, it, was, it was a necessity with no refrigeration. And depending on what part of the world you lived in, no refrigeration, you know, in Northern Europe might not be that big a deal. But if you're living in other parts of the world, no refrigeration is a pretty big deal. And so salt was... Huge. But banks. So the Knights Templar became these guys who would issue notes of credit, who would hold money, who would protect pilgrims. And so people would pay them to be their protection. So they would guard caravans. They would guard the pilgrims as they would travel in groups. And so the Knights Templar, um, and then in Jerusalem, they were the guys that guarded the Temple Mount, that guarded the, the, the things that were precious to Christianity. Um, now, do you know why Friday the 13th is a bad luck day? It is related to the Knights Templar, and I can't remember the year uh, it happened, but the Knights Templar became very powerful. So the king of France, the Knights Templar had more wealth than the king of France. In fact, the king of France was in so much debt to the Knights Templar, he couldn't figure out how to get out from under the debt he owed to the Knights Templar. So what he decided to do was to villainize the Knights Templar and accused them of all kinds of heinous things. And on Friday the 13th, I can't remember the year, on Friday the 13th, he sent his army to basically execute all the Knights Templars. And uh, so from that time, Friday the 13th has been considered an unlucky day because that was the day that the King of France tried to you know, discredit and get rid of the Knights Templar so he didn't have to pay his debt back to them. It, it, incidentally, it was at that time when the Knights Templars, the, you know, the royalty turned on them because they were so indebted to them. Um, so supposedly, we don't know, legend says, you know, the Knights Templar took all kinds of treasure 
from Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount, and all of that was taken back maybe to Rome, or maybe the Knights Templars had it. And, and the king of France was trying to get all of that treasure along with getting rid of his debt and discrediting the Knights Templar. And they fled, and supposedly their treasure went with them somewhere. Uh, so if you've ever watched the legend of Oak Island, you know, some people believe the treasure of the Knights Templar is there, uh, which I think is probably not true, but who knows? Um, uh, there was a group of guys named the Waldensians. Do you know who the Waldensians were? Led by Peter, um, Peter Bruce. So remember, the world is Catholic. The Waldensians advocated for people studying the Bible themselves and not depending upon the church or the Pope to tell them what to believe, but you need to read the Bible yourself and let the Bible be your ultimate authority. Sounds kind of familiar. This is in uh, 1126, the church burned Peter Bruce at the stake because they didn't like his uh, theology and they didn't like the fact that he was questioning the authority of, of the Pope. Um, and so the Waldensians, they were um, this group of people who who decided they were going to live a very simple lifestyle. So uh, their founder was a very wealthy man. He basically, he gave up all of his, he gave up all of his um, wealth and gave it to the poor and took a vow to God to, you know, help the poor, preach the gospel, spread the word of God, and um, he was burned at the stake as a result of it. So, you know, this predates the Reformation by, you know, by uh, centuries. Um, actually, Peter Waldo was the guy who founded the Waldensians. Um, Peter de Bruce um, is, I don't know why, there's two different names here. Uh, you have the Petrobrusians too, Peter de Bruce. Uh, the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians were very similar in their theology and in their mission um, of spreading the gospel. Um, and they were opposed by the church because it, it caused people to question the authority of the church. A lot of, so like these guys, there was also this pushback against the corruption of the church. And why was the church corrupted? Well, remember how things worked. So you had a pope who was the bishop of Rome. You have, um, you have a holy Roman emperor. 
And how does the Holy Roman Emperor take care of his empire? He's got powerful men that he gives land to in exchange for loyalty. Well, who's going to get that land? Who became the bishops of the church? Well, those lords that were loyal to the emperor became the bishops of the church. And so you can see where this could become very political. It had nothing to do with their theological prowess or even their commitment to Christianity, but it was more about their commitment to the emperor. Well, these guys like the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians saw the corruption and they were calling people to a more pure understanding of the gospel and to kind of not, not, not fall for that. And they called out the church in this corruption. It's like, you guys should be taking care of the poor instead of, you know, making sure your political power and your, your place is secure. And so um, that began to get the people's attention and that bothered the powers that be. And so they burned him at the stake. So these guys were, uh, the Waldensians were in, um, it, it would have been in around Central Europe. So, I mean, they were in, in what would be modern day Switzerland, uh, France, um, Italy, in, in that region, in the Alps. And then as they were persecuted, they began to spread all over. I can't remember which ones. Uh, some of them, they would copy the scriptures by hand. And they would, um, they would have, um, they would go to like fairs. And they would sell things like a farmer's market or anything. And they would have code words. And they, as people were were buying their wares, they would ask them, you know, like a question, like a signal question. Uh, I have some other things that you might be interested in. Well, it was the scripture because it was against the law. They, it was against the law for them to distribute the scripture. And, and so they used these farmers markets and fairs of selling their wares as ways to distribute the scripture as well. And so they went all over you know, the movement spread. And, um, and the church was not able to stamp it out. Um, you know, this, these were the very beginnings of the Reformation. So what happened in 1517 with Luther really was the culmination of several centuries of reformers who had been working and it just became a more cohesive and, and powerful effort. All right, we'll stop there.